We kind of ask him this question each week, saying, who is sitting on the throne of your life? Who has got that seat of power in your life? Last week, kind of just imagery of a stool. So everyone has a stool, and whoever sits on that stool uh, makes the decision, sets the direction, guides our lives. And who is that for you in your life? And no matter uh, what the answer that is, it really kind of can boil down to, to one of two answers, right? It's either God is on that throne or man. And so that, that's a lot of what the book of Habakkuk is talking about. In week one, we looked at Habakkuk chapter one, and we see that this prophet Habakkuk uh, uh, trying to come to, to grips with the fact that he knows who God is, he knows the character of God, but God doesn't seem to be doing the things that he would have expected him to do. Uh, his perceived action or inaction uh, of God doesn't match up with the character of God. Have you ever been in a place like that yourself where things just don't seem to match up? God, if you're like this, then how come this is happening? Or if this is who you are, then why does this happen in the world? And Habakkuk struggling through that, and we looked at how he leaned into God. Through faith, he trusted God and said, I'm going to go to you out of faith and seek the answer to my questions. And he cries out to God. And then last week we talked about how we all live in faith, by faith in something. Even your, your, your drive here this morning, your faith in the brakes of your car or faith in the seat that you're sitting on that it would hold you as soon as you sat down, you, you were uh, uh, sure of what you hoped for and, and confident of things unseen. You put, you know, as we talked about, uh, if we all live by faith, let's put our faith in an uh, all-powerful, unlimited, loving God as opposed to a limited and broken man. Well, today we're, we're continuing this conversation on faith, and we're going to look a little bit more about how faith should really move us into action. It should influence our daily lives, the things that we do and the things that we don't do. Our, our faith should affect that. Who is on the throne of our lives, who is in control of our lives, should affect and will affect the day-to-day decisions of our lives. And so if that's God on that throne, then our lives will look one way, but if we take him off and try to put ourselves on, which there's always that temptation, then it's going to look another way. We're going to see what it looks like to live a life of humility and repentance. And kind of like you saw in that video, this, Lord, Lord, you call me Lord, but you won't do what I say. We're looking at you know, being able to live a life of faith where we can you know, put God on the throne and say, I'm going to do what you asked me to do. We're also going to see what faith in self, you know, not just putting uh, any, any person on that seat, but putting ourselves on that seat where we say, okay, no, I'm going to be my own God. I'm making my own calls. I'm, I'm setting the trajectory. I'm setting the parameters. Uh, we're going to see what that looks like here in, in uh, Habakkuk chapter 2. So I'm do a brief recap of the background for Habakkuk. We're not going to go as, as depth as we have in the past couple weeks. If you really are interested in it, I, I'd encourage you to hop online. Uh, you can listen to the last two weeks on there. We go through a lot more detail. But just to kind of set the stage here, we see that he's this prophet who is frustrated with the people of God. He's frustrated because he sees the people of God uh, basically going against their God. He, he remembers the history where things were moving closer and closer to receiving and experiencing the promises that God had for, for uh, Abraham, where he called, basically, uh, I'll make a nation out of you. And some other promises that they were expecting and looking forward to and, and moving closer and closer to. And they got to this point with King Solomon, where they're, you know, they're probably the, the closest they were. And all of a sudden, uh, one generation after, it goes to a division where you have 12 tribes of Israel. So 12 parts of Israel are broken into two different nations. Israel to the north, which was 10 of the 12, and Judah to the south. I also want to real quick uh, recap the air map. For those that were here the past couple weeks, you'll know what that is. 
doesn't really tie into today's message. I just want to give you some handles, some utensils as we digest God's Word, as we, we, we uh, feast on the Word of God. I want to help give you some reference as you're digging into it. You can maybe, oh yeah, okay, that makes a little more sense. I can, I can picture that or I can understand that a little bit. It is our heart here at Meadowland that you would uh, have the Word of God in your hands. If you don't, you can grab one of the Bibles and take it home with you. If you know someone that needs one, take it with you. If you have an electronic device that can use the Bible, by all means, use it. We would love to see the Word of God in people's hands. We'd love to see you uh, engaging with God on a personal level and, and coming to a place of understanding more and more what the Word of God says. This is something for us all to know and, and to, to see and to chew on. And, and so that's kind of hard in this. I also need to uh, uh, share a little correction. Um, my, my mind has deceived me, and uh, there's two C's in the area that both have multiple names, and instead of using the correct multiple names for the Dead Sea, I just combined the two C's. And when you look on a map and you just kind of see the reality of it, it's kind of like doing uh, Lake Michigan and Lake Erie. Oh, they're the same name, same C. No, they're not. And so my apologies for betraying you in that. It was not, well, not betrayal. It was just, uh, I messed up. And so I please uh, ask your forgiveness um, we were all on a journey together and, and learning and growing together. And, uh, so I'll give you the correct air map. I had some erasing to do, and I, I fixed it, so you'll notice it looks a little different, but uh, it's correct. Uh, so we have, if you remember, the shoreline, right? The shoreline for the Mediterranean Sea over here. And we had a strip of land, and then we had the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and the Dead Sea, which is also known as the Salt Sea or the Sea of Arabah. Not the Red Sea, that's way down here, also known as the Reed Sea. So salt, uh, Red Sea, Reed Sea down here, forget that because we don't need that right now. But you got the Sea of Galilee, Jordan River, and then the Dead Sea, the Salt Sea, or the Sea of Arabah. All names work for that. If you're like, what is this guy doing? You probably weren't here the first week and the air map's totally throwing you. Just don't worry about it, it's fine. <laughs> but trying to give you an understanding of that area because as we look through God's word, the majority of God's word took place in this geographical location. At some point, moving in or out or around, or, you know, that, that's where a lot of, of what we read about in Scripture took place. And so the more we can understand that, hopefully give you some handles to hold on to as we dig through God's word. So you got the shoreline, Mediterranean Sea, Sea Galilee, Jordan River, Dead Sea. Down here under the, sea, uh, the Mediterranean Sea, we have Egypt. And if you remember, as you come up, you have Judah, which was the smaller tri- the smaller uh, of the two nations that were made out of the, God's people because there's two out of the 12 tribes. And then you have Israel, who at this point in our story, when Habakkuk was written, Israel is gone. The Assyrians have come in and, and taken them out. And so the 10 tribes are, are gone. They've been exiled and overthrown. And then you also have the, uh, Bab- the Assyrians came from up here. And then you have the Babylonians who are coming even from a little deeper uh, to the east if you're on a map. And they're going to come and then all their way down and take out Judah. That's kind of looking into the future for Habakkuk, obviously the past for us. All right, now I got that fixed. Um, we also saw how so Habakkuk is frustrated. He sees uh, we're down to the last two out of the 12 tribes. And uh, God, you know, your people are, are strained from you. I don't get this. Um, we're moving the wrong direction. And so he cries out to God. He has this question. God, what are you doing? Do you hear us? Do you see this? God replies, yep, I do. I see. I got a plan. The Babylonians are coming to get you. Habakkuk's like, um, do you have a plan B? Because I'm here too. I mean, yes, there, there's some that, you know, we, we need some discipline. We need some correction. But you're going to use the Babylonians? They're, they're more wicked than we are. 
is basically his, his second response to God. And I love, again, this picture of faith. As Habakkuk says, you know what, God, I, I don't get it. I, I didn't get it before. Now you're saying, yes, I do see what's going on. Yes, I am listening. And yes, I have a plan. And here's my plan. I don't get your plan. They're more wicked than we are. How could you use them? It's a little tangent here. Habakkuk is looking at the world in a way that I think we do as, as children, and honestly as adults too. I don't think we grow out of this. You look at our, our movies, I think they, they tell this story. We look at the world as good guys and bad guys, right? Habakkuk seen Judah, the people of God, as the good guys, and the Babylonians as the bad guys. How can you use the bad guys to come and, and, and you know, cast judgment on the good guys? But the reality is that none are good. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We've all messed up in some way, large or small. We have fallen short of what God would have for us. And so in one perspective, you could say that, that we are all bad guys. We're all the bad guys. And Jesus is the good guy. So that's not even the right way to be looking at it. If we really want to look at this with a, with a proper perspective, we need to look at it not as, as good and bad, but as alive and dead. Those who are far from God, those who have rejected God, the, like, for example, the Babylonians, were saying, we will be our own God. They are dead in those decisions. There is no life in them. But those who say, God, I will trust in you. And, you know, fast forward to the New Testament. I, I will put my faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. They are made righteous, and there is life. And so we're not as good and bad, but as living and dead as we look at that, we've got to see there is a major, major, major difference between an alive person and a dead person. It, it wouldn't be a, which one's alive and which one's dead. Hang on, hang on, I know this. Uh, can I phone a friend? No, it wouldn't, it would be obvious because the differences are that blatant. Yet it's interesting in our culture, so many times, those of us who, who call ourselves Christians and, and are alive in Christ and are trying to live that way, how similar we look to those who are far from God. We're called to be in the world, not of the world. So we're going to look at that a little closer here, but that's just a little tangent for you. And let's jump back on to background of Habakkuk. So he cries out to God. God gives an answer. Habakkuk's like, you sure? Is that really how you want to do it? And then we looked at last week how he says, yes, the Babylonians are coming. Go and tell other people. Habakkuk 2.4 talks about how there's those who, who make themselves their own God, their own pride and arrogance. They're puffed up. Uh, you know, they're unrighteous. And then there are those who trust in God. They live by faith and are righteous. And then, you know, calls for Habakkuk to go and tell others. And this brings us up to, to the second half of kind of chapter 2, and this is where we're going to sit here today. If you got your Bibles, uh, we're not going to jump in them right now, but we're going to get there pretty soon. If you want to open up to Habakkuk chapter 2, this can be on page 786 of the, the Bibles in the seats in front of you. It'll be on the screen. Again, you can have it uh, electronically if you want to turn on your Bible. That is awesome. So here's what we look at in Habakkuk chapter 2. Basically, God gives this response to Habakkuk's second question. Are you really going to use the Babylonians, God? And God's response to him is, one of, is yes, I am. But we're going to see that God is still a just God. And he says, I'm still a just God, and there will be judgment on the Babylonians as well. And that's, that's what he kind of gives us an example of. They, they put themselves in that seat of power in their lives. They have made themselves their God. And so as a result, there will be uh, my wrath poured out on them. And that's what we're going to look at here in, in a little bit. But before we get there, I want you to see that there's kind of three different 
lifestyles right now that have been displayed here in the book of Habakkuk. Three different lifestyles. The first one of this. The first one is a picture of someone who says, God, you are on the throne of my life. I'm living by faith in you. Uh, for example, that would be Habakkuk. And what's interesting, too, is all three of these people are, are going to go through at varying times in the story. Some presently are going through this. Some, it, it's something that's, that's prophesied that will happen, will take place. Um, but they're all going to be going through, are or going to be going through some kind of hardship or some kind of trial or difficulty. And so you have those who say, God, you are, the, you are in the seat of power of my life. I'm going to live by faith. Uh, for those people, that's like Habakkuk, you know, and, and those who are being uh, obedient to God. Um, the issues they go through are, are just simply that. They're hardships and trials. Part of going through a life where sin is, is present. They live by faith. Then we have a second group of people. They say that God is on the throne. They carry the title of God's people. These would be the, the people in Judah. But they're living their own way. They're, they're in blatant disobedience to God. They're saying, yeah, we're the people of God, but you know what? I'm worshiping this false god over here. I'm, I'm following this pagan ritual there. I'm just living for myself. I'm doing whatever I want. And so they're, in essence, giving lip service to God, but they're living uh, in disobedience. And this, in our, in our story, is like Judah, the, the, the people of God. And the hardship they go through, we're going to see, uh, that's the Babylonians coming. It's, it's discipline. God is, is disciplining his people. We'll talk about that here in a little bit as well. And the third group of people, the third uh, uh, way of living life is where you put yourself on that throne. You put yourself on that seat of power. You, you live apart from God. You say, God, I don't care what your ways are. I don't care what, what you're teaching, you know, because I'm just going my own way. Uh, right or wrong or whatever. I'm going my own way. And that's like the Babylonians. They, they're a people of self. And this story we're going to see here in the rest of chapter 2 that they're facing the wrath of God. So the hardship for those who are following God, it's just hardship and trial that, that, that this world brings. For those that are being disobedient, uh, in, in disobedience, it, it, it's, it's correction, it's discipline for those who are far from God, who have not uh, accepted him as king, as ruler of their life. It it's eventually will be wrath poured out on them. And, and there's a, a modern-day correlation here. Right? If we look around in our culture, I think we see this lived out today as well, where you have the Christ follower who, who relies on Jesus for forgiveness of sin, who's placed their faith in God. So Jesus, I, I need you to wash me clean of my sins. They're righteous by grace through faith in Jesus. They're repenting, they're trusting, and they humbly come before God. Yes, I, I realize we live in a, in a world where um, Christ is already died. He's already paid the price for our sins, but the work is not yet complete. So there's still this daily grind of, of continuing to be humble, continuing to, to put uh, God on that throne, continuing to repent of sin whenever it's revealed to us, whenever we see that we've sinned, repenting of that and trusting in God. But there's that one way of people uh, that we, we live in this world. And then we have those today who, who are Christians. They say, I believe in God, or I'm a Christian, but they're still maintaining control of their own life. They're not saying, they're not saying God, I surrender control to you. They're saying, oh, no, I'm a Christian, but no, I'm still driving this ship. It's kind of like putting God uh, at one uh, helm of a ship, but still you know, standing at the one that's really controlling the rudder. Oh, no, you can be up there, but you know, I'm, I'm still driving things. And they're living in, in outright disobedience. What's interesting is their response is also going to be the response, hopefully, of those who are living apart from God. But if you're in disobedience to God, I would call you to repent, to humble yourself, to follow the example of those who are living faithfully, to repent and to, to humble yourself 
and to trust in God for the forgiveness of sin. Then there's those in our world who are just saying, you know what, I don't need God. And to continue in that lifestyle, to continue in that, there will come a day where they stand before God and the holy wrath of God will be poured out upon them if they've not accepted Jesus for the forgiveness of their sin. And the same thing, there's an opportunity for them to repent and to trust and to be humbled. So one of the things I love you see in the Word of God, just the fact that we're so many years beyond when some of it was written, we see the patience of God. The patience of God so that uh, other people may hear the Word of God and, and may turn their hearts to God. God's patience is not meant to be seen as, as indifference, but as a desire for many to come to Him. And so even in this, in this prophecy saying the Babylonians are coming, it's not like, hey, they're coming tomorrow. It's like, yeah, they're coming. But get the word out. There's a, a space in here for God's people who are, who are disobedient to return to him or those who are far from him to surrender their lives to him. See, now here, here's where we, we go wrong sometimes. Some of us wrongly believe that as long as I believe in Jesus, nothing bad will happen to me, right? I, I, I say I believe in Jesus, nothing bad should happen anymore, right? That's, that's incorrect. It just doesn't work that way. Kind of in a similar train of thought, some of us wrongly believe that, hey, if God is so good, if, if he's this good, great God, then um, really nothing bad should happen. Nothing bad should happen at all. So but bad things happen. So I mean, really, God can't be that good or God doesn't exist, right? It's just not true. And we see that when we look at who God is and his character a little bit. God is a loving father. A loving father disciplines you say, okay, well, you know, I'm packed. I don't, I, don't, I don't get that. Well, a loving father disciplines. If we look in, in Hebrews 12, we see how a loving father disciplines his children so that we may share in holiness. The discipline of God isn't, isn't to, you know, to pick on us, but it's to move us to a place of holiness. In the same way, when I, when I discipline my daughter, it's not to, to pick on her. It's not to make her sad or to make her cry. It's because I love her. And I desire to help move her to a place of holiness where she's living a life that is, is surrendered to God. And even in, in my discipline, it's not a, hey, you have to listen to me because I'm your dad. It's a, listen to me because God calls you to listen to your parents. The authority is, is ultimately from God. And so we try to point her to God because discipline is, is meant to, to move us to holiness in God. And so those that say, hey, as long as I believe in Jesus, nothing bad will happen to me. There might be some areas of your life that maybe some discipline that you're going through. Maybe it's just sheer consequences. We still go through consequences in this world, right? So you could go knock over a liquor store, and then, you know, uh, you get caught, and you go to jail, and all of a sudden, give your life to Christ and say, hey, I'm, I'm a Christian now. Nothing bad should happen to me, right? Open the doors. Let me out. I need to go tell people about this. You can be 100% genuine in that, and they're not opening those doors, right? No, you can stay here. There's plenty of people that will listen here because there's still consequences that we live through. And God can work in the midst of that. God can do amazing things and beautiful things, but there's still consequences for our actions. So, so a lot of times those, those things that are happening, uh, sometimes maybe are just consequences of our own sinful actions. God is a loving Father. God is also a just God whose holy wrath is poured out on those who reject him. Regardless of what you're going through, regardless of what you're seeing, uh, those who have rejected God, that they're saying, God, I don't need you. Say, so, God, I don't want uh, the forgiveness that comes in Jesus. And there will come a point where his wrath is poured out on them. The response of, of all of us should be one of humility, repentance, and trust. 
Maybe this is something you've never done. Maybe this is something you, know, you want to do today for the first time to say, God, I'm humbled. You are God. I am not. I've knocked myself off the seat of power of my life, and I give that to you. I surrender it to you. Maybe that's something you're saying, you know, God, I've been disobedient. I've been running from you. Uh, I'm stepping aside. Take the seat of power of my life. And specifically, take it in this area of my life where I've been disobedient. And others of us are saying, hey, help me to remain humble. Help me to remain in a place where I continue to repent. And so regardless of the way we're living, we all can have that, that, that heart of, of, of humility, repentance, and trust. So here's where we're going to go here for the rest of the morning. There's five woes. Basically, when God starts talking uh, in Habakkuk chapter 2, he's talking about woe to the, to the Babylonians. Here, here's kind of what's coming. Because they've done this, you know, here's kind of what the results of that are going to be. And I think in that we see um, kind of what does it look like when we live our life um, with us on the throne and not God. And we're going to see that. We're going to say, okay, well, here's what faith the man looks like. All right, I think that should draw us and convince us that, you know, we really need to place our faith in God. And my hope, my prayer is I'm going to try to make some correlation from what was happening in Babylon, maybe see how that may look in a modern-day setting or modern-day context. But honestly, my hope is that, that God would do a work in each one of us, that he would convict us, that he would cut us to the heart to reveal any sin, to reveal, reveal any disobedience, reveal any ways that we've rejected him. That he would do that work in us, that we would uh, respond with a soft heart and respond and humbly say, forgive me. And so that's been my prayer here. Will you join me in a quick word of prayer before we continue? Father God, I can't change a life, Father God. That's not my power. I don't have that ability. But you do. And so we ask that you would fill this place, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, Father God, that we uh, would be changed people because of you in our lives. We want to put you in this place of power in our life. Uh, we want uh, to live by faith which means we want to live according to your word, according to your ways. And sometimes, Father, it's a fight. Sometimes we stray. Sometimes we're disobedient. Uh, some of us maybe have never made that first step. And so, Father, we, we trust that you'll speak to our hearts now. We trust that you will work uh, and that you will help us to, to hear from your word the ways in which we've strayed, the ways in which we need to return to you, the ways in which we need to repent, Father. Help us to see that. Help us to acknowledge it. And help us to trust in you. Because you are God and you are good. In your name. Amen. All right, so here's, we're going to jump into back in chapter 2 and, and just kind of walk through that and look at what, is it, what was going on in Babylon. What could that look like here in modern day? And this is, these are examples of when we put man on that stool of power. We put man on that throne uh, of control in our lives. Habakkuk 2, 6 through 8. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles from him, uh, for, for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them because you have plundered many nations. All the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence of the earth to cities and all who dwell in them. Basically, what God is saying is for what you've done, the plundering you've done, uh, eventually those you have plundered will rise up and they'll say no more and they will plunder you. So the Babylonians are coming and they're getting all this uh, financial gain. They're acquiring wealth by unrighteous means. They're going in, taking over other nations, taking over other villages 
and they're taking the spoils of war. And God says, if you live that way, eventually those you plunder will come back and you will be plundered yourself. The problem here is they've acquired wealth by unrighteous means. And see, when self is on the throne, when our self is on the throne of our lives, our finances may be ill-gotten and they'll lead to dissatisfaction. The Babylonians had wealth that was ill-gotten that led to a dissatisfaction to where they were plundered. So what does that look like? Well, first, you know, if we're talking about uh, wealth, we acknowledge that we as Americans are wealthy. Yes, you can find someone who's got more. You can find someone who has less than you. I, I understand that. But on a global scheme, if we pull back our view and try to get you know, a, a view from the galaxy standpoint and see the earth and see all, all those that are on it, we as Americans are rich. We, you, know, you may say, well, I have a, a small little house and you know, I'm just renting a small little one-bedroom apartment or you know, it needs work, it's kind of a, you know, a, a dump or you know, my, my car is a 1979 Pinto or I don't know. Um, some of you may like that, who knows? Um, and uh, you know, it needs work, it's falling apart, you know, but there's so many in our world who, who barely have shelter, if, if that. Or shelter is a shack or, or their home is, is roughly the size of what we would call a mudroom or an entryway. Uh, and, and their li- entire life takes place in, in that, that small area. Or they don't even have transportation and, and walk miles daily. And I think until we've been to a place where, you, where the, the people live in a means where they have open sewers, it's hard for us to really understand how wealthy we are. There's even a stat out there to say, uh, what's spent in America on ice cream, that, that same budget as a nation, um, will be enough money to feed all those who go hungry in the world in that same year. And so what we're spending on, on uh, just bonus things could actually provide food for others. So we are rich. We are wealthy as a nation. Now, I also need to say that rich is not in and of itself bad. Uh, it's just it's an adjective. It's descriptive. Uh, so this isn't a rich or poor issue. And as you look through the pages of Scripture, if you've ever wondered about that, is it okay to be rich? Is it okay to be poor? Which one's right? It, that's the wrong question. It's not a rich or poor issue. It's a righteous or an unrighteous issue. If you imagine a box with a, a plus in it, so you have four quadrants, and you kind of have rich and poor on the top, and then uh, righteous and unrighteous. I know all these air diagrams I keep throwing at you. So rich and poor, righteous and unrighteous. So you kind of cross them. You end up with the righteous rich, the unrighteous rich, the righteous poor, the unrighteous poor. And so it's really that question of, of righteousness. The righteous rich, maybe are, are someone who, who's worked hard to achieve what they have with their wealth, and they, they've, they've studied hard, and they've been uh, very uh, frugal in their expenses and, and how they spend their money, and they've uh, sacrificed not buying certain things so they could save up to go do something else, and they've built and acquired wealth by their hard work and the work of their labor. You can be righteous in that and have that wealth. Then there's those who have built and amassed wealth by cheating and stealing or, or, or selling their integrity for the sake of, of a job promotion um, or, or to obtain money in some kind of get-rich-quick scheme. That's, a, that's the unrighteous rich. There's a, a righteous poor, those who maybe haven't been able to get that job promotion or get a, a better-paying job because you said, you know what, I, I work hard, but I'm not willing to do certain things out of a heart of integrity. And if the boss says, hey, I need you to cut these corners, and you say, no, I'm not going to cut those corners, maybe you don't get fired, but you don't get that promotion either. And so you stay at a, at a lower pay bracket. You can work just as hard as the righteous rich and just as holy as the, the righteous rich and both have the same joy and satisfaction because their joy and satisfaction is not in the wealth but in the giver of that wealth. 
their God. Whereas you have the unrighteous poor, those who are poor because uh, their own laziness, or they're a sluggard who's not willing to work uh, at all. And I know that you could find other examples on how people have come by their wealth. But I'm just trying to make the example that's not a matter of rich or poor. It's a matter of righteous or unrighteous. And so we have to ask a question of ourselves. How do we come by our wealth? The wealth that we have. How do we come by that? By righteous means or by unrighteous means? When self is on the throne, our finances may be ill-gotten, but it leads to dissatisfaction. All right, woe number two. Habakkuk 2, 9 through 11. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high. To be safe from reach of harm, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam will, uh, from the woodwork respond. Basically, what, what, what's uh, going on here is Babylon has oppressed others and now they go and live in, in safety and luxury. They, they go into places and they wipe everyone out, maybe even enslave or make, make people uh, do their work and, and oppress. But then they, they, they go somewhere else and live a life of luxury and safety. And so the problem is that they've created a mess in one community, but then they go and live in another. And they say, you know, well, it's no big deal. Who, who's really going to stand as a witness against us? We're now in the safety and security of our own little uh, compound. And um, you, know, you see here, the stones of the walls will cry out. The, the woodwork will cry out against you, will testify to the sin of Babylon. And then you see a similar story in, in Luke 10, where Jesus is talking about how, you know, hey, if my disciples don't speak out about who I am, the stones will cry out and say who I am. Creation will cry out as a testimony to what God is doing, in this case, uh, to you know, condemn the Babylonians. Nothing is hidden from God's sight. So see, when, when our self is a God on our throne, our integrity may be exchanged for comfort. You know, sometimes when we put ourselves on the throne, we, we exchange our integrity just for some comfort and some perceived safety. You know, and we see this in our world today, right? We see individuals, we see companies that will go into an area and they'll take advantage of, of an area, but they won't live there because the environment they've created there is so poor. No, that's not for me. I'm going to go somewhere else and live. It's, it's this heart of, well, it's not my home, so it doesn't matter. I can act this way here because it's not my home, but then I'll, things will be different when I go back home. Maybe that's some of us here this morning where maybe not quite to the scale we're taking advantage of full communities, but maybe we're just acting differently at work and then we come home and, and, and we go back to acting righteous. Or maybe uh, in, whether in the office or the work truck or maybe uh, your work is at home and it's, it's once the kids are, are napping, you have your quiet little corner of the house where now you act differently because no one's around. Maybe it's when you're at your school desk and, and everyone else is studying on something, de- something else. Or you, you get those moments where you know, who else is going to be a witness to what you're doing? And, and temptation kind of increases because, you know, things you wouldn't normally do in front of others. Okay, well now I'm all alone and so temptation strikes and, and, and you're tempted to do other things. Pretty much what woe number two is saying here is, I call it the, the, the credenza is watching you kind of principle. You think you're alone, but creation will cry out. Your desk, your work truck, your, what, your, your pen, whatever you have, will cry out as a testimony to the things you're doing, to the things that we do. And so we need to be people of integrity. Well, number two points out that Babylonians had no integrity. We need to be people of integrity. 
Credenza's watching you. Quote number three, Habakkuk 2, 12 to 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, for the, uh, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We're going to hit on verse 14 at the end. Um, Let's look at the, the woe here going on. Basically, Babylon, you are building communities on violence and injustice, and it's not going to last. You're building up your communities on violence and, and, and sin. It's just not going to last. See, when we put ourselves on the throne, our community's morality can wane. It, it can diminish. It, we start asking the wrong questions. Let me give you an example of this. Uh, uh, in the state of Nevada, not all counties, but there's a lot of counties where prostitution is legal. And, and back in 2009, there, there was a, a conversation going on in, in their um, houses of Congress in Nevada about should we and how much can we tax prostitution? And see, that, that's, that's the wrong conversation to be having. Here they're saying, how much can we make, how much revenue can we bring in by what's going on in our, in our towns, instead of asking the question, should it even be legal? Should we allow prostitution to be happening here? Instead of looking at what kind of effect has it had on our community, how has the sex slave trade increased in our areas, in our neighborhoods, because of what, we, what we've said is legal, because what we've said is permissible. When self is on the throne, our, community moral, our community's morality can wane. Bad conduct is allowed uh, because it can be taxed, because revenue and profit can be made. The best example of this is Mardi Gras. Think of the, 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 the thousands and, and thousands of dollars that are made. People go down and just to, to engage in, in, in whatever feels good. Treat your body as, as, as a wonderland, as a playground. I'm not saying it's wrong to celebrate. I'm not saying it's wrong uh, uh, to, to party. But there's bad con- conduct that's allowed to go on there because it brings in profit. We don't ask a question of, is this good or is this bad? We just ask, how much money can it bring in for our community? That's kind of, uh, I think the lottery is kind of the same thing, right? You, you know, you're going to be hard-pressed to find a passage of Scripture that says, do not gamble. And I can find that word for word. But you see tons of Scripture that talks about how we should handle our finances, how we should be hard workers who, who, who just over time uh, uh, build our, our wealth and, and build, uh, earn finances as opposed to seeking uh, a get-rich-quick scheme. And if you look at it, the lottery really is played predominantly by those uh, who are either poor or, or middle class. And yet the funds go to pay for, for things in society for all people. And so in essence, it's the poor, you know, those that don't have or have the least paying a uh, foot in the bill for everyone else. It's like, it's like a voluntary tax. It just doesn't make sense to me. But we don't ask, oh, is this good or bad? We just ask, well, how much money can it bring in for the community? And so we need, our, our community's morality can wane when we put ourselves on the throne. But here's the thing, when we put God on the throne, he works in the midst of his people. He works in the midst of his community and can redeem back his community. Here at Meadowland Church, it is our heart and it is our desire to see John's or to see McHenry County, to see uh, the surrounding area redeemed by the blood of Christ. Where celebrations, where events, where things that happen in our community can, can bring glory to the name of God. And that starts with us saying, God, you are on the throne of my life. All right, woe number four. Habakkuk 2, 15 to 17. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. 
You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. I know, pretty scandalous one here, but we'll, we'll unpack it here. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. Basically, what he's talking about here is uh, circumcision in this point in history was a sign of, of being God's covenant people. Uh, oh, you're circumcised? Okay, you, you are uh, uh, one of God's people. And so basically they're saying by, by what you do, by your actions, you're revealing that you're uncircumcised. You're revealing that you're not one of God's people. Because God's people wouldn't do this, although that's kind of what brought Habakkuk to this point in the first place, is God's people were doing all kinds of things they shouldn't be doing. All right, so uh, drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, uh, in reference to a, a cup of wrath. And utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. This imagery of, of nakedness uh, throughout Scripture is, is, is in reference to shame. That there's a shame to it uh, many times in the Old Testament when you see uh, that, this term used. And uh, basically it's saying the Babylonians, you, you, you're getting other people, some of your neighboring towns, uh, involved in what you're doing. You, you're getting other people involved in the sin, involved in, in tearing others down, right? And, and you're bringing shame to them, uh, but also shame will be brought to you. Instead of glory for what you're doing, you will receive shame as well. It leads to shame, not glory. So when, when self is on the throne, when self is on the throne of our lives, our mess ends up in the neighbor's yard. Our garbage ends up in the neighbor's yard. It, it's not just our own lives. It bleeds over and has an impact on others. Uh, if we look at this in a modern-day correlation, it's actually, I want to take a very specific and then a little more figurative uh, correlation. First of all, if you, you know, maybe this was your weekend. Maybe this describes your weekend. Hey, you went out to the bars, you went out to the club scene, and you bought all kinds of drinks for people because your hope was, hey, every drink I buy is one, one step closer to some nakedness. If that's what you're living, that, that you're on the, I'm on the throne of my own life. You have to ask the question, what, what is your heart? What is your intent? Now, I also need to acknowledge here, I'm not saying that the drinking is wrong, because God's word is not saying that drinking is, not, is wrong. Jesus' first miracle that's recorded in Scripture is a, is a bartender. Turns water into wine. We, we know he, he drinks uh, uh, wine, uh, alcohol. Drinking in and of itself is not bad. But Scripture does say that drunkenness is. To, to, to be overcome by alcohol, to where it, it, it's controlling our decisions as opposed to God. That is sin. And so, uh, you know, if, if that's your goal is to get others drunk and, 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 you know, some trouble can happen. You kind of see as drinks go up, nakedness goes up and, and it leads down the, this, this path. Knock it off. That's the, that, 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 that is going the wrong way. That is putting faith in man, not in God. But I think there's another lesson in here for us. The Babylonians were, were in this place where like, hey, you're trying to pull some others in and, and, and kind of showing their shame as well. It's kind of like the, if you can get someone else to do it with it, you don't feel as bad doing it, right? You know, sin loves company. It loves company. Uh, yeah, but, and here's, here's the risk. You can be uh, a follower of Christ and be surrounded by a bunch of other followers of Christ and still make the wrong choice. We need to be putting God on the throne and continually pursuing that. I went to go see a movie, my wife and I, and then a handful of other friends, some other couples, and went to go see it. It was a comedy, and, um, you know, we got in there, and early on in the movie, there's just a very crude, very crass uh, content that they were joking about. And I, I kind of, the point where I was embarrassed to be sitting there with my bride, and I'm like, 
I'm sorry, honey. That's just, there's no reason that a lady should have to, you know, it's no good for any of us. Um, but I really felt bad about that. And, you know, then that scene was done, and the movie goes on a little more, and that kind of something else happens of that nature, and it's kind of like, oh, man. You know, uh, you kind of pull one of those, eh, this is uncomfortable, 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 and scene. Okay, it goes on to something else. Okay, we got through that. And so that happened a few times, and it finally got to a point where I'm like, this, this is, there's nothing holy, there's nothing beautiful, there's nothing uplifting about this. Let's just leave. And so we excuse ourselves, and we walk out in the lobby. Uh, just little factoid, uh, hopefully this will help you in life at some point. If you walk out of a movie within the first half for any reason, especially because just content-wise, most places will give you a refund. Not all, but most. Um, I didn't know that then, and I had to pay for something I didn't see. That's okay. Um, so we walk out, and... Uh, once the movie ends, our other friends came out. It was interesting because they kind of had these stories of, oh, it got better once you left. But then they started telling me about these other scenes. Oh, then this scene happened, and this scene happened. And I'm like, that's, that's better? And it's just more of that same garbage. And I'm like, man, we just totally put our defenses down, put our guard down, because we, were, we, were, uh, we thought we were in light company, but really we're just being all going to sin together. You know, we were just exposing ourselves to this garbage. Um. So just because you're with other fathers doesn't mean that you're not choose sin. Instead, we are filled with shame. I was just embarrassed and then apologized to my wife. I'm, I'm so sorry we went to go see uh, this garbage. So when self is on the throne, our mess ends up in our neighbor's yard. All right, one last woe. This one's a little different. doesn't start off with the woe. kind of just th- uh, throws it in the middle here. This is woe 5, Habakkuk 2, 18 to 20. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? A metal image, a teacher of lies. Uh, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple, that all the earth keeps silence before him. I saw this picture uh, of a statue, and it was on Facebook, and, and someone had made this comment about, what a beautiful statue. I can't believe there's, there's a person in there. Basically, they believe that, you know, statues are made by people who are then covered in stuff. And pretty, uh, whatever. Um, so they were a little off. Um, but that's not the case. There's no one in there. there. There never was life. There never is life in these idols. They're just man-made things. Yet the, yet the Babylonians were saying, hey, here's what we're going to worship, these things we made. Uh, I still don't understand when... when, when um, the Israelites were freed from Egypt, let out of Egypt, and then Moses goes up on, on the mountain, and, and he's, he's with God, and the people are like, hey, is he coming down? Is he coming down? Uh, I still don't see him. I still, hey, let's make a golden calf. Yeah, because that'll, that'll, that'll strike fear in the, the, the eyes of our enemies. I, mean, I don't know where the calf came from, but whatever. So they make a... Uh, um, all right, back on track. <laughs> My apologies. Woo. Uh, so these idols, they have no life in them. There's not no life. There never was... There's actually no life in following them. That's what the Babylonians were doing. When self is on the throne, our worship is taken from our creator, and it's given to creation. It goes on the created, not the creation. It goes to the created, not the creator. And they'd be like, we're creation ourselves. You know, given, your dad gives you a bike for Christmas, and you praise the bike instead of thanking your dad. It's that backwards. Our worship is broken. We are made uh, as creatures of worship. And when we worship idols, it, it, it's broken worship. We're made to worship our creator. 
I don't worship, if we take this to present day, I don't worship, I don't worship this everywhere in our society. What's interesting is, I think one of the reasons we don't see it all that much is because it's normal. It's become normal for us in our culture, so we don't see it. We go to another culture, and we see their idol worship. I, I had some time uh, a week here and there uh, in high school to go to Singapore and Malaysia on a missions trip, and uh, especially Malaysia, but some in Singapore. They have these flags that they put out in their front yard that signify which gods they're praying to at that, for that week or that month. And so some would have like one flag or three flags. Some have like 20 flags. I mean, they're, they're just prayer warriors to all these false gods. And that's blatant. Okay, those are their idols because they give their time, their money, their resources, and these things have no life in them. Well, here in American society, it's no different. There's things that we put our time, our energy, our resources to that we put before God. Some of these things we love, in and of themselves, they're not bad, but when we put them before God, we've made them an idol. A.W. Tozer says, Idolatry is worshiping anything other than God, or God is anything less than he's revealed himself to be. I think here in our society, sometimes it's a hobby or some kind of entertainment, time in front of the TV or an event or just something that you just do. That's just his thing. That's just her activity that she always does. Aren't we going to church together? Well, no, they're doing their thing. Or hey, aren't we going to Bible study together? Oh, no, they're just doing their thing. Can we spend some time in the Word together? No, there's a show on I want to watch. What, what, what are those things that we're putting before God? Is it, I just want to be happy and be entertained. Or do you want to find a real satisfaction in God? Again, not that any of those things are in and of themselves bad. But when we put them before God, then we've then we started to Worship idols. All right, so we're going to close with this. Who do you relate to? We talked about those three different kinds of life. Who do you relate to? Do you relate to the Babylonians? Where you say, hey, Steve, I have been on my throne, and, and there was no one else on my throne. I, 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 I'm a self guy. I'm a self girl. My, my cry to you today be that you would soften your heart and move to a place where you would humble yourself. You would say, I am not God, but God, you are. And would you place your faith in him by trusting that he is who he says he is, that he'll do what he says he'll do by providing salvation, forgiveness of sin, that he'll take away your mistakes and, and he'll replace them with the righteousness of Jesus when you place your faith in him. Maybe that's your step today because you've always had yourself on the throne and so you need to knock yourself off and put God there. Maybe you relate to Judah where you've been living in some blatant disobedience. You've been saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you haven't been living it. You haven't been putting God first. So maybe uh, you're at a place this morning where you need to repent of whatever that is. I just trust that God's working in each one of us. There's things that God's working on in my life, and, and hopefully he's, he's doing, you, know, you can see what he's doing in your own as well. But let us be people who are in the world but not of the world. Let us look different than the dead. Those who are alive in Christ, let us look different than the rest of the world so that we can show them that truth of Jesus and they can find life in Christ. Or do you relate to Bacchic? You say, I'm doing okay, Steve. I'm on my throne. I'm sorry, uh, God's on my throne. And I, I keep him there. I fight to keep him there every day and follow him. But sometimes just this stuff gets hard. What, what, how do I continue to live in faith? Real quick, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, 9 and 10. Um, 
this is Paul, the Apostle Paul is talking about some just heartache and hardship that he has. And that God, I pray that you take it away and you haven't. And then uh, this is Paul saying, but he said to me, God said to me, uh, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul goes on, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We're a proud culture that, that's quick to champion, oh, what we're good at, what we're great at. But the follower of Christ is kind of the other way around. Let's be quick to champion what God is good at, what God is great at. A God who saves, a God who builds up, a God who redeems. So as I come back to verse 14 and verse 20, so I'll leave you with this. Verse 14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God. On one hand, for those who are followers of Jesus, part of that is our job, to go and share this word. But it's also, this is, this is encouraging. God's will, it said right here in Scripture, the earth will know. All will know at some point that God is God. And so I just pray that we take the opportunity to place our faith in him now. So that when a day of judgment comes, we can stand before him and say, I am righteous before you because of what Jesus has done to me. And then verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Again, this should be an encouraging word. It's basically one of those things where it's like, God's still on the throne. God's still in charge. God still knows what he's doing. He's still God. He has not forgotten you. He's not abandoned you. And everyone will be silent before him. God gets the last word. And so I'm going to ask the worship band to come forward, and I'm going to wrap us up in a, in a word of prayer. In, in the midst of that prayer, I'm just going to take a moment just to be silent. And just in that silence, just let, let God work in you and, and try to listen. What is he calling you to? Which one of those lifestyles do you, do you align with? And what's that next step as far as uh, repenting, as far as uh, humbling yourself and trusting in God? Let's pray. Father God, you are an awesome, awesome God. We acknowledge that salvation comes from you, that, that you are the one who saves us. Father, we, uh, we, we, we pray what we know your heart is, that, that all would be saved. We know you would long to see all come to you. So help us to share that word with others, Father God. But we know that uh, as we live by faith, we thank you that you answer our questions uh, in your time, Father God, that you respond to us, that you engage with us like you do with Habakkuk through your word. But I also thank you, Father, that you, that you will have the last word and that all will stand silent before you, for you are worthy, God. So we're going to take a moment here just to stand or sit or to kneel or how, whatever posture we want to take before you, God, uh, and just be in silence before you, acknowledging that you are God and that we want to put you on the throne of our life as we live by faith, trusting the promises that you've given us, that we will be with you in paradise, that we'll be with you for eternity. Lord, you are God, and you are so good. Help us to give you the seat of control, the seat of power in our lives. Amen.